Please turn with me to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1. where we continue our series of sermons on Acts 1 and 2, and today we come to the account of the ascension, and we'll focus on the verses 6 through 12. We're going to include verse 12, even though it begins a new paragraph in in our translation. So, when they had come together, and that's the apostles and the Lord Jesus, probably a few other disciples too, they asked Him, Lord, will You at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by His own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be My witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth." And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven." Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. That's as far as we'll go this morning. This afternoon we hope to take the next number of verses. In response to the preaching, we'll sing a hymn about the ascension of Christ, hymn 40, the stanzas 1, 2, and 4. Church of our Lord Jesus Christ gathered here in Ancaster. Our text this morning describes to us in very simple terms how Jesus ascended into heaven. Last week, we saw in the opening verses of Luke's book of Acts that Jesus is not sitting idle there in heaven, but He continues His ministry. Or as Luke would say it, Jesus continues to do and to teach. Those are the two verbs that Luke uses. He's doing those two things through certain agents, through His Spirit, through His apostles, and ultimately through His church. And make no mistake, calling all the shots, directing all the decisions of men, and forging the outcome of all that those agents do is the Lord Jesus Christ, our ascended Lord. So, Jesus is busy, but why, we want to ask, why did Jesus have to leave us on the earth in order to do that? Why couldn't Christ have stayed here on the earth and set up headquarters, maybe in Jerusalem or in Galilee, and conduct His ministry from there? 
wouldn't it be so beneficial for us if we could book an appointment to have a sit-down with our Savior in person? Imagine that, jumping on a plane, flying over to Israel, and spend perhaps 15 minutes, if we would have that, speaking with our Lord face-to-face. Wouldn't that be something? Talk about encouragement and motivation. Wouldn't that make our evangelism a lot easier? Instead of people having to just believe our testimony about Jesus, they could go and talk with Him directly. Isn't the departure of Jesus from the earth a kind of a hindrance to His church gathering work, an obstacle even for us in building up faith and trust and love in our hearts? Wouldn't it be better to see Him once in a while in the flesh? Well, brothers and sisters, we hope to see out of our text that Christ's ascension is just the opposite. It is not a hurdle for the church, but a help. It's not a drawback for Christians like you and me, but it's an incredible advantage for Jesus went up to receive a kingdom, a kingdom which He's giving to us. That'll be our theme this morning. The Father crowns His Son before the eyes of the apostles. I'll preach that message to you. The Father crowns His Son before the eyes of the apostles. We'll see two things, the ascent of our Lord in triumph and then His return in glory. Now, this, the subject of kingdom is in the air really all throughout chapter 1. And our text opens with a reference to the kingdom, verse 6. So when they, and that would be the apostles, and like I say, probably some other disciples as well, when they had come together, they asked Him, Lord, will You at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? So that's the topic of the conversation on the day of ascension. Now, a lot of commentators, they look at that question of the disciples and they they find fault with it. They read into that question that even at this late hour, the disciples of Jesus don't understand really the kingdom of God. They take the disciples to be referring to a political kingdom because they say, when will, or will you restore the kingdom to Israel? That, this political restoration was indeed something the Jewish people had come to look for for a number of centuries already. They thought that God would send the Messiah to restore the 12 tribes to Israel and and recreate a political entity in their own land, like in the glory days of David, but only greater. We certainly run into that way of thinking among the disciples and the crowds of Jews generally earlier in Jesus' ministry before His death. Remember at a certain point the crowds even wanted to force Jesus to become their king. And the the fact, this way of thinking is, is one of the main reasons why the disciples were so dumbstruck and crestfallen when they saw Jesus crucified. For they could not imagine the Messiah ever being 
crucified. That to them meant the end of, of the dream that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah. He, how could the king be killed on a cross? That didn't make any sense to them. So, a fair number of scholars, they, they see the question here in, in our text, and they say to themselves or in their commentaries, you know, those disciples, they just don't get it, even now, at this 11th hour. They don't understand the kingdom. But I've asked myself, is that a fair conclusion? Is that a realistic conclusion to make? Here they are, these apostles, on day 40, after Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus has spent the bulk of those 40 days with them, appearing to them time and again, and teaching them, Luke has told us. What exactly was Jesus teaching them? Well, we find that in verse 4, He was speaking to them about the kingdom the kingdom of God. Remember, too, that Jesus had opened their minds. We saw that last time in Luke 24, 45. Jesus had opened the minds of the apostles to understand the Scriptures. So the Holy Spirit was in them illuminating their thoughts so that they could grasp the Scripture passages or the Scriptures in general, particularly as the Scriptures reveal the Messiah and His kingdom. That was the subject of teaching for 40 days. A little bit later in Acts 1, we'll see that this afternoon, the Apostle Peter stands up to explain how things have gone with Judas. What does he do? He exegetes two psalms, Psalm 69 and Psalm 109. You can find it referred to in the footnotes there. He quotes those psalms, and he says Judas had to do what he did because it was foretold in the Scriptures. When you read what Peter says in the latter part of, of Acts 1, which is only a few days from this point of our text, he speaks like a highly skilled Bible interpreter, a man with deep insight into the Word of God, I mean, let's be honest, would you or me as 21st century Christians with all the Bible tools at our disposal, would you and I have explained what happened to Judas like Peter did using Psalm 69 and Psalm 109? I mean, did you ever think that Psalm 109 spoke about Judas' betrayal of Jesus? So, it seems very obvious that the minds of the apostles were filled with the Spirit. They were deeply in tune with the Holy Scriptures. So, then I ask, is it really likely that the apostles on day 40 were still thinking like they used to think about a political kingdom? I don't think so. Notice, too, that Jesus doesn't correct them about that. He doesn't say anything or chide them. You know, He did chide them earlier in His ministry when they were still filled with misunderstanding after a time of teaching. Jesus would say things like, Matthew 15, are you still so dull? After the feeding of the 5,000 and later the 4,000 and the disciples worry about forgetting bread, Jesus scolds them, do, do you still not understand? I mean, I changed 
bread, I multiplied bread so that 5,000 could be filled. Why are you asking me about bread? Like, so he doesn't, Jesus doesn't hesitate to scold his disciples, but here there's no scolding about the matter of restoring the kingdom to Israel. He doesn't say, how can you be still so dull as to think of the kingdom in a political fashion? No. Jesus only tweaks the part about the timing. He says, it is not for you, disciples, to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by His own authority. There's no criticism about the kingdom reference. So, in other words, Jesus is saying, look, He's agreeing with the disciples. The kingdom's going to be restored to Israel, but don't you worry about the timing." That's my father's business. Don't you fixate on the when of the restoration, but apostles concentrate on the how of the restoration. That's the key thing for you. For without skipping a beat in Jesus' reply, he moves right on and he gives them a command, a command that still has force for the church today. Verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. The end of the earth. You recognize that from Isaiah 49, verse 6? You might want to just flip back there a moment. We're going to see a few of the connections to Isaiah 49. Jesus is deliberately using language which is found in the prophets, particularly Isaiah's prophecies, in which the prophets reveal what the disciples have asked about, namely the restoration of the kingdom to Israel. Isaiah is writing to a nation, the Israelites, who had been unfaithful to their God, and God had punished them. Yet, Isaiah holds out the sure hope that God will yet be merciful to them. So Isaiah speaks in chapter 49 about a special servant of the Lord. The Lord's going to send a particular servant with a particular mission, verse 5, to bring Jacob back to him and that Israel might be gathered to him. Now this figure of the servant of the Lord, he appears more often in Isaiah Earlier in Isaiah 9, the servant is described this way, very well-known words, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and here it comes, he will reign on David's throne and over David's kingdom, establishing and upholding David's kingdom with justice and righteousness forever. So, From Isaiah's prophecies, we know that the Lord's servant, the Lord's Messiah, will come to reestablish David's kingdom, which is God's kingdom. Let's not confuse those two. Those are the same thing. And he's going to bring a remnant back of Israel, back to their God. This is what Jesus came to do. Only it won't just be the Israelites who will be part of this restored kingdom. God is going to do a marvelous work, he says in Isaiah 49, 
That's what verse 6 is about. It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. The Lord is saying it's, it's, it's not enough for you to bring back the remnant of the Israelites. Here comes, I will make you as a light for the nations. That's the Gentile peoples of the earth. That my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. It's the same expression as the Lord Jesus in Acts 1 verse 8. That my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. That is, to all peoples on the earth. Gentiles will be added to Israelites and together they will form this renewed kingdom of God. And all together, they will be, Jew and Gentile, the new people of God. They will be the new Israel of God. Or as we saw in the letter of James, as he addresses his letter, they will be the 12 tribes in the dispersion. The apostles knew this, you see. Jesus had opened their minds to understand also the Scripture of Isaiah. Only when you read Isaiah, Isaiah never addresses the, the question of timing or method, like how exactly is this going to come about and when? Isaiah doesn't say anything. How will the Messiah be a light for the nations? How will the Gentiles come in precisely? How and when will salvation reach the end of the earth? Will the Holy Spirit be sent out in an instant, changing hearts in a moment so that, that new believers and Gentile believers will come streaming into Jerusalem? Is that how it's going to be, Lord? The disciples could be forgiven for thinking along those lines. For there are other prophecies which picture Gentiles saying to one another, I quote from Isaiah 2 verse 3, Come, say the Gentiles, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord that the Lord may teach us His ways and that we may walk in His paths. Beautiful vision, Isaiah 2. So the disciples' question here could easily have been, Lord, will you at this time draw unto yourself your chosen people, the remnant from among the Israelites and your chosen people from among the Gentiles to reestablish David's kingdom? Will you do that now? That's a fair question based on the understanding of God's Word. But Jesus corrects the matter of the timing. He teaches them what they haven't yet come to know. My kingdom will come, but it won't come in an instant. My kingdom will come, and it's, it's not going to come automatically. My kingdom, David's kingdom, is going to come through your service, apostles. Israelites, yes, they're going to have their hearts changed, and they're going to honor me as king, and Gentiles will gladly come as well and honor me as king. But you apostles... You have to go out there and tell them. That's what Jesus says next, verse 8. You are my witnesses. You will be my witnesses. Jerusalem, Samaria, end of the earth. You do it. They're going to be witnesses 
first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. That's the same order found in Isaiah 49. First, the Lord speaks there about restoring fallen Israel, a remnant thereof, and then the Lord extends His grace to the Gentiles. And that's exactly how the book of Acts unfolds. That's how Luke shows us the fulfillment of Scripture. The apostles spend their time first in Jerusalem, then the gospel goes out to Judea and Samaria, and eventually it goes out to all the surrounding Gentile nations. That's what Paul does in the latter half of Acts. Eventually it goes right to the heart of the Gentile empire, the city of Rome. That's how the book ends. And everywhere that Paul goes, he follows the same order. He first goes to the Jews in the synagogue, and then he goes to the pagans in the city square. To the Jews first, but also to the Gentiles. This is quite a commandment that the apostles receive, isn't it? Go and be my witnesses to the end of the earth. And it's on the heels of that commandment, at that moment, that the ascension of Jesus takes place. Verse 9, and when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him from their sight. The timing is no coincidence. It never is when the Lord is involved. Jesus had spent most of his time these 40 days speaking to the apostles about the kingdom of God. And on the day of ascension, his last interaction was a command about their participation in the restoration of that kingdom to a renewed Israel. And then as, he, as soon as he's issued that command and explanation, before their eyes he is lifted up from the earth. Why? What's the connection? Well, it's because Jesus is now going up to quite literally take possession of His kingdom. What the disciples witnessed was the coronation of Jesus as Almighty King. He wasn't just returning home. He was becoming King. And more than that, His crowning comes after a hard-fought battle and hard-won victory down here on the earth. The whole idea of going up, of ascending on high to be recognized as the victor in battle and to be honored as a victorious king, that's something that ancient kings would do after they won on the battlefield. They would go up to their palace, usually located on a mountain or a hill, and there, there would be like a a celebration. There would be a parade and, and the king would go up and he would receive accolades from his citizens and he would be shown to be the victor. Well, we have in the book of Psalms pictures of God going up after becoming victorious. We sang Psalm 47 to start the service. God went up on high with a joyful cry. And then a couple of lines later, he went up after humbling every foe. He's going up victorious. Psalm 68, which Paul quotes of Jesus' ascension in Ephesians 4, it describes the Lord going up, leading captives in His train. So, Jesus goes up, or more accurately, as Luke says, Jesus is 
lifted up. And then we have to ask, lifted up by whom? Well, that's by, by His Father. That's what the cloud is all about. The, a cloud took Him out of their sight. That's no, that's no ordinary nimbus cloud. That's the cloud of God's glory. That's the cloud that led Israel in the desert for 40 years. This is the cloud which descended on the tabernacle and the temple, symbolizing the presence of the Lord. This is the cloud which came down on the mountain of transfiguration and enveloped Jesus and Peter and James and John and Moses and Elijah. You remember that? When they saw those disciples, saw a glimpse of the glory of His kingdom. In other words, this is God the Father coming in the cloud to escort the Son, whom He loves, escort Him back to heaven to give Him the throne of His father David, the throne of God's own kingdom. That's why Jesus had to physically leave the earth, you see. Because the throne of David's kingdom ultimately was not down here, but up there in God's throne room. David's kingdom was a type, a shadow of God's kingdom above. So Jesus doesn't take the shadow on the earth. He goes up to take the real thing. He's king on high. Jesus has received ultimate power and authority. You can read that in Ephesians 1, which, which is why I had chosen it. Maybe nice to read that passage at lunch with your families today. He's received all authority, all power. So that means that what's going on on this earth, wherever it's going on, in Washington or Ottawa, London or Moscow, Jesus rules over it. Every devil, every demon, whatever power they might have, they, they cannot do a thing without the permission of our Lord Jesus. Jesus rules. Jesus guides. Jesus reigns over every big thing and over every little tiny thing in this world and in your life, beloved. Did you know that? Ascension Day should bring us deep comfort and encouragement for the same person who died for you and for me. The same person who purchased the forgiveness of all our sins is now in charge of the universe, in charge of every detail of our lives with the goal of bringing us safely into His kingdom in glory. So, you can, you can breathe again, brothers and sisters. You can breathe again. Breathe out your fears. Breathe out your anxieties and your worries. And breathe in the peace of knowing that you are loved by this great King Jesus Breathe in the fresh and exhilarating air that you belong to this same King who truly does rule the world until the church is completely gathered in and His kingdom is fully restored to the renewed Israel of God on the day that He will return in glory.
For as much as Jesus won that critical victory over sin, Satan, and death, by His own death and resurrection, there still is a war going on. Paul the Apostle describes it in Ephesians 6, a spiritual battle, but so does David describe it in Psalm 110, which we sang. That psalm is actually a direct prophecy of Christ's ascension. As we sang it, the Lord, that's Yahweh, said to my Lord, that's David's master, Christ, the Lord said to my Lord, these words have been spoken, be seated on the throne at my right hand till I, the power of your foes, have broken and you upon their necks your foot shall plant. There's still a battle going on, even with Christ on the throne. Satan and his kingdom, the kingdom of darkness, they hate Jesus Christ and his kingdom. And they're constantly doing everything they can to break it down, to, to overthrow it, to, to steal citizens if they can, and ruin subjects of the king. This was something that Jesus had taught the disciples already before his death. If the world hated me, it's going to hate you too. And no doubt it was something Jesus had clarified and impressed upon them after his resurrection. King Jesus is going to expand his kingdom on earth. He'll do so by the testimony of the apostles and of, of the church after them, but there would be resistance from Satan and his armies. And when you read the book of Acts, you find that resistance. It comes up time and again. You read about the suffering of God's people. You read about persecution and about James being killed by Herod and Stephen being stoned by the Jewish leaders. But every time you read about an attack of Satan, you read about how his efforts never make a dent in the church. They never actually accomplish their goal of breaking down the kingdom because every time the, the Satan attacks, the church comes out stronger. Look for that as you read through Acts. Satan can only do what King Jesus allows him to do, and he will only be allowed to do those things which further the Father's plan of our salvation. That's, that's the upshot, you could say, of what the disciples are told by the angels in verses 10 and 11 of our text. We read that the apostles were standing there gazing into heaven. At the end of verse 11, it says that the disciples, they saw Jesus go into heaven. That's an interesting combination of expressions. Later in Acts, Luke says of Stephen as he's being stoned, Acts 7 verse 55, that Stephen was gazing into heaven. That's the same as verse 10. And what did Stephen see? Well, Luke tells us, Acts 7, he saw the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Is that what the disciples saw at the moment of Jesus' ascension? Before the cloud completely took Him from their sight? Well, we can't say for sure, but 
Listen to what Peter says on the day of Pentecost. So just a few days later, Acts 2, verse 32, he says, This Jesus God raised up, and we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, He's poured out what you now see, the Holy Spirit. So it's very clear that Peter and the other apostles, they knew all about the crowning of King Jesus at the right hand of God. They knew that He had become King. And so they knew also that one day the glory and the might and the splendor of that heavenly kingdom would visibly and physically sweep down to the earth and it would be here. This was something Christ had taught them already while still with Him, them on the earth before His suffering and death in which the Holy Spirit now was bringing to their mind again. Think of what the Lord Jesus taught in Matthew 24. That whole long section there about the, the end of times, the signs of the times. And then Jesus says, Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. So, the disciples, they're, they're gazing into heaven. They've got their eyes glued to the clouds looking for one more glimpse of their Lord and Savior, maybe still thinking that He might turn around and come in glory right that minute. Well, that's when King Jesus taught them their next lesson. This time, it's a lesson that He teaches from the throne room because Jesus sends two messengers the king sends two heavenly courtiers to spur the disciples into action. All of a sudden, there's two men dressed in, in dazzling white. That's a symbol that these were not ordinary men. These were angelic beings. And they address the, the, the eleven men of Galilee, another indication that they weren't ordinary humans because they never had met the eleven, but they know they're all Galileans. Men of Galilee. Why do you stand looking into heaven? What are you doing standing here? This isn't time for nostalgia. This isn't time for wishful thinking. This isn't time for inaction. Your king has given you a charge, a mandate to preach to the world. And he's given you a command to go into the city of Jerusalem and wait until you've been clothed with power on high. So don't just stand there wasting time. Go and fulfill your king's command. That's why they, they go back into the city so, so quickly and obediently. So the angels, or Christ through the angels, offer another corrective to the disciples, but then they bring, him a great, they, they bring them a great word of comfort too. The angels say, this Jesus who was taken from you into heaven will come in the same way you saw him go into heaven. These angelic messengers, they affirmed what Jesus had earlier taught them. That the king had gone up in glory, but the king of glory was going to come back in glory. Actually, he's going to come back with greater glory than ever. 
Jesus' ascension was witnessed by a relatively small number of disciples, but His return on the clouds, that's going to be witnessed by the whole human race everywhere. Jesus went up and the world hardly noticed, but when He comes back, there will not be an eye that does not see. There will be no tongue that does not confess, and there will not be a knee that will not bow to King Jesus. That's why the disciples, putting all those things together, being enlightened by the Holy Spirit, they return to Jerusalem. And notice the manner in which they return. Luke tells us at the end of his gospel, we're going to borrow that from Luke 24, they return to Jerusalem with great joy. Think about that. Jesus is physically absent, and He's not coming back physically, but they're joyful. Think also of what they had experienced in the city of Jerusalem just days earlier. These were the same disciples who a few weeks earlier were cowering in the upper room in fear behind locked doors, being afraid of the Jewish authorities. But now, the fear is evaporated. Now, there's no wistful thinking about missing the physical presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there is great joy in their hearts because they have seen their Savior crowned by the Father as supreme King. And they know He's going to return in glory. And they know, too, that He's going to send His Spirit in a few days to be with Him, with them. They know for certain, having seen His coronation, that it's only a matter of time before renewed Israel will be gathered in, Jew and Gentile, and all of the king's enemies will be lying at His feet. They could now go about their king's bidding with full confidence and joy, fear banished, because despite whatever hardships might come, there would be success to their labors because the king is on the throne. And so you and I, beloved, we can go about our tasks with confidence and joy. We know the outcome. There is difficulty and trouble in this world. Satan does attack. We can expect to suffer in the name of Christ, as the book of Acts will show, but take heart. Your Savior, King Jesus, has taken the throne, been given the throne, and He has overcome the world. His power lives in you, even now, through His Spirit, and you, you're going to make it. You will. You'll live your life, you'll serve your King, you'll testify to Jesus Christ, you'll bear fruit, the fruit of gratitude, you'll do that until your task is finished and you go home to glory to your King. Or you'll do it until our King comes back to this earth to make the earth the home of glory 
one of those two realities is going to happen. And ultimately, that second one will be the final. How do we know this? The ascension of Jesus, the coronation of the Son, guarantees the outcome. Amen.